Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Met a ghost of a king on the road when I first fell. Fire burning to my knees, to my knees I fell. Met a ghost of a king on the road. Here we are. This is—is is this episode eighty-five? This is. Wow. Octo cinco. <laughs> I think that's a. Is yeah. that how they do it? I think so. That's that's how the. Does anybody watch these videos? Can we stop filming? Uh, I'm afraid to say that our last video was very popular. Blarg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's unfortunate. So I'm trying to get total numbers for us. So oh, we, can, we can. That's too bad. Yeah. Because it would be great if we could just turn that camera <laughs> off and not worry camera, about it. The camera doesn't matter. I feel like filming, having a, just a camera in a podcast is not necessarily interesting. So. Well. I think it's your facial expressions. Yeah, it's my <laughs> facial expressions that are, are not interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll work on making them even less interesting. Yeah. Uh, but luckily, the seasons are changing. So pretty soon, I'll always be wearing sweatpants. <laughs> oh, man. It's about to get... It, the chill was in the air. It is. Also, I am attempting a... Uh, one of those things creative people do sometimes when they rearrange all the pencils on their desk to try to be more productive. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be attempting that here. For the next couple of months where I am going to go dark completely uh, Tuesdays through Thursdays. Oh, wow. I'm just going to vanish. And okay. Be unreachable uh, in the hopes that this will make me more productive. Yeah. And. Well, this will be a fun sociological And so we've trained. Yeah, well, I'll at least do it for a couple of months. And then if I don't get vast amounts of writing completed. Yeah. In that transition, it will have been a complete waste. Of reorganizing well, my pencils. I mean, of a lot of your Tuesdays through Thursdays, but nothing else, I guess. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's uh, a- so it's interesting because it's, you know, I, I have plenty of writer friends and uh, creative friends who get to be more reclusive than I do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having, being a part of a community that's kind of big and thriving is. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a ha- small space. In a small town has, <laughs> has itself a. Uh, some added twists and turns when it comes to like unbroken writing time, uh, which pushes into the evenings, which it will still do, I'm sure for me, but we're recording this on a Monday instead of a Tuesday. We're going to try this Monday thing. And so yeah. Mondays and Fridays will be the days when I exist in the modern world. <laughs> Tuesdays through Thursdays, I will be vamos. That'll, and- be, that'll be fun. Uh, yeah, we're interested to hear if it works. I'm going to try to get a bat phone. Um, a bat. A bat phone that oh. o- only, um, I don't know, only my wife could call, but the problem is that she's the one who texts and calls the most. <laughs> so it might be. Heather, true confessions. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, we're going to try it. We'll see how it goes. This is, full, this is full darkness. Full. You're writing in complete darkness. Yeah. <laughs> Complete with a bat phone, <laughs> yes. Com- complete technological lack of access. Okay, let's just let's just say that I'll be writing without access. Yeah, uh, to the internets. Um, no, uh, I will have my secret phone, uh, reachable by children and children. Nice. <laughs> That's good. I don't know. I don't know yet who the who the secret list will be that the actually has that numbers. number i'll have my my like dad on tuesday through thursday number and my kids phones yeah um but uh, we'll we'll see we're gonna try it and that's cool 
maybe I'm just going to catch up on all my Netflix. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Uh, there's, have you read any Wallace Stegner? Um, the Crossing to Safety. Do you know Crossing to Safety? I don't. There's a, a, a very sad character who's like a, an artist who never does anything. A very sad character who's reminded <laughs> you of me. No, I was going to say it's the opposite, but he has this perfectly organized workshop. And that's like the moment when the main character realizes this guy's home life is not good when he goes into his workshop and it's spotless. spotless and there's yeah. not a thing going on in there. Um, anyways, great novel. Right. Not reminiscent of you, but. <laughs> so what are we actually talking about today? Although we're not talking about my attempt to be productive. Well, uh, first first question is, I think this will be releasing right before Rings of Power drops. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the question I had for you is, how does a studio make anything turn into a success? Like, because you know they're never going to come out and be like, this flopped. <laughs> <laughs> This was a terrible mistake. Yeah. Mm. I guess maybe we have to watch their uh, Amazon studio turnover like three months from now, perhaps. That yeah. would be the sign of success. But I was watching how they're manipulating the numbers for that Game of Thrones spinoff and also the Obi-Wan show and yep. how they're just, yep. they're tracking how people are falling off a cliff as far as finishing the series. So yeah. I was just curious if you had any insider. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll try to find whatever metric can be reported. Well, what's important is when you, when you look at the press releases to kind of pay attention to uh, which things are not discussed, okay. which, which things are not being referred to, which things are not being discussed. When they're talking about some, some big number, which, you know, if they're not talking about completions or they're not talking about whatever, uh, then that tells you that the completions were bad. You know, they, they if anything was good, they're going to be telling you. Um, anything they're not mentioning is, is uh, not going to be great. Um, or just as mediocre or medium or whatever. Definitely not of, um, not worth the amount. Okay. I see. But mostly the biggest the biggest plan here is to is to bank and this works this is the most effective plan to bank on the complete short attention span of of the american viewing public that people won't remember and will probably watch it anyway mm -hmm. because they will watch everything yeah and so they're going to run out and they're going to come back. They're going to run out of whatever other show they were watching and they're going to circle back around and, you know, hit this one. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you have uh, a real, real bad show on your hands, your best bet is to trust the, the bird brains of the American <laughs> viewing public. <laughs> Meaning they're going to watch it anyway. And yeah, or or it. if you're like, I don't want them to watch this because it'll make us a cultural punchline for the next 20 years. If it's really bad and you're like, man, this is horrendous and we're getting just destroyed on socials, all you need to do is feed something else to the bears. Just throw some other piece of meat mm. over the fence. Gotcha. And you know, you'll be you'll be fine. Just okay. move on. Everybody's gonna forgive Amazon. That's not like they're canceling Prime. Right. We did yeah. It was just a waste of a, you know. Over a billion. <laughs> Just that. Okay, cool. You needed the write-off anyway. Yeah. Right. There you go.
This so, helps the profit margin. Yeah, hopefully I'll keep a drone off of my doorstep for at least another 20 minutes. That's what we need to Yeah, we need to help that their drone budget went into creating weird was stalled derivative <laughs> derivative <laughs> Tolkien products. <laughs> yeah. But it's I it makes me happy that it's this bad and that people are receiving it this way. Yeah. But um I've heard from how could they not though? Right. I've heard from some of our listeners that we can't know until we watch the first episode. Oh, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> but we do. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's some things that can't be unknown. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean unknown as foggy. I mean, once known cannot be unknown. Yeah. Um, I saw exactly two trailers, I think. Yeah. And that was that studio putting its best foot forward to try to convince me that it was going to be good. And so I now have certain knowledge. Yeah. You know, I mean, you don't even, you didn't even get to the plot one, <laughs> which was about Galadriel finding her sword is what I heard. I, uh, I too, I did. Yeah. It was that trailer three. Yeah. And if, if, or, or four, I actually, whatever it is, if the trailers were so ineffective that they couldn't sell me through to the next trailer, they couldn't actually close my interest enough to get me to watch the next two minute teaser. Yeah. Then we are really in trouble yeah. <laughs> because they have hours and hours of content that they want me to consume. And I am a you absolute off. Tolkien fan. Yeah. And I fell off. So I fell off between the trailers and you couldn't capture me. You couldn't even get me through the credits of the pilot episode. Mm. So yeah well that's fine. anyway that'll be yeah moving on to other things uh the question we the question i wanted to ask you is this is based on a few reader questions about how do you write real christians into mm. fiction without ruining your story yeah um and and they said that a few ways one of our one some people are wondering hey I, if i would pray in normal life in this situation i should I'm okay with having my characters pray, right? But at the same time, I think they've heard some of our episodes on how good themes can sometimes make bad stories. And then I wanted to ask you, how did you approach that? Because you, if I remember correctly, I don't think you have prayer. Well, you don't have your internal character prayer where I know in real life there would be prayer happening, right? Yeah, so, I, Cy Cyrus isn't stopping to pray or um, Henry, but there are some prayers before meals that are mentioned like there, so there's no there's prayers and then there's also uh liturgical prayer um you know there's there's things like that but i have not i'm trying to i'm scrolling through 13 novels in my head yeah sorry to, so put putting you on the spot think, <clears throat> trying to think about whether or not i've ever described an internalized prayer um and i don't know that i have um and it's not out of like some hard and fast rule that it can't be done. Um, but when I have had a character um, cry out, you know, it's like, you know, like basically sort of a God help us, you know, kind of a situation. I think I've had it verbalized and it's usually been in a situation that's real time fast enough that um, it doesn't, it's not a time for a, a devotional. It's not a yeah. You know, it's not a it's not a devotional setting. Um, I think about um, Captain John Smith, 
uh, in Empire of Bones, singing the Psalms as he's going to his death. I think about like I've, I've I do plenty of that, and I consider that a, a form of prayer. Right. That he's um, he's singing Psalm twenty two uh, as he's walking to his destruction. Right. Um, and he and he's doing it not like a, a pirate singing a pirate song. He's doing it because he knows he's he's going to his destruction. Yeah, and it's the right it's the right prayer. It's the right words for it. It's the it's the language of someone about to be. Yeah. Um, so I'd say one of the ways that I have handled it is by attempting to elevate it a little bit. And so this is a stretch of realism. I do think that art is uh, art at its best elevates the reader, elevates the viewer, elevates the. Uh, the consumer of the art and it's not just it's not a mirror so i'm not trying to show and the the books i appreciate the most the books i respect the most the same with films and, and tv and everything else those things are not a mirror showing the viewer showing the reader themselves although they can right in part like and at different parts they do and they pull them in yeah. But the goal is not to say, are you spiritual in this way? Let me show you a character who is spiritual in this way. I've I've tried to show um I've tried to show people a spirituality that's a little more. Like there's a little more meat to it or there's a more substance to it. A character who has Psalm 22 at his fingertips like in that moment is one who could pray yeah. and, and it's sort of run. like that's not what most people have most people don't have the ability to just grab a psalm because they're about to die and it's time for their death song and so they're going with psalm 22 um i'm not trying to show the reader you know themselves yeah i'm trying to elevate the reader by showing them a character yeah who is going to death faithfully and with a nobility and with a spirituality that's more substantive it's got more protein so be not far off for grief is near that does elevate what would be a typical quick prayer that yeah. would come to most and so mind. he's um i use i pull stuff out of the scottish the older scottish psalter for john smith and so you know one that so he, matches character yeah matches too. his character and and so i i use that for him because it's it's something that put would push the reader it actually kind of challenges the reader and pushes the reader to something a little deeper and a little more. Um, the same thing with the the call and response, the liturgical call and response that you see in Ashtown. Um, it makes and and this is actually just this is something I wanted to have happen, and I can testify after you know almost ten years of the books, uh, ten years no, um, but it feels like about ten years of the since Dragon's Tooth. Um, after a while. Uh, of the books being out, <laughs> um, uh, I can testify to the fact that it has had this effect. Is that I wanted it to be uh, potent and kind of moving in a way that would make the readers want that, crave yeah. that kind of uh, potency. Okay, that kind of that kind of cultural and spiritual potency, even in a decaying institution. To, you know, to to see something like that. And so I've not given scenes of characters having internal moments of devotion uh, or, or things like that, even though I could realistically do that. There's plenty of times when I could uh, go inside uh, 
inside the head of Cyrus or Antigone or one of these characters and show them praying, uh, that's, you know, would it be absolutely believable in any number of these situations? That's not something that I think pushes the reader. Okay. And that's why I haven't done it. It's not on principle. Yeah. Um, I find it less interesting. Yeah. Um, and doesn't push the reader, challenge the reader culturally in, in the way that I would like this particular story or art to do. It's not that I will never do it. It's not that I, I, I might be able to even go back through all the novels and find a place where one of my characters has. So I couldn't even, I couldn't even promise that I haven't done it. Yeah. Um, I just, I just don't, don't think I have. I don't remember a clear passage right now across the corpus. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't there also a truth to it that, that we aren't realistic in writing? That writing no. uh, dialogue is intentionally, you, you've made this point before. If you go into a coffee shop and record a conversation, people don't make sense. No, they and, don't listen to each other and they don't make sense. And they're not actually staying on topic. And so if you were to go transcribe and write realistic dialogue, probably any acquisitions editor is going to say, hey, your dialogue's terrible. Yeah. And you could say, no, it's realistic. Yeah. And no, then, what it needs to do is give the impression of realism as opposed to being realistic. Yeah. And so you, what you want to do is try to actually uh, communicate that sensation of the real. Mm-hmm. without it being real because you don't have time for it to be real yeah and the reader doesn't have time for it to be real and so we're it's all fat brush strokes you know yeah. it's all reduction and, and everything else and so i think that in devotion in spirituality um even as i'm talking i'm becoming more and more convinced that i've actually had characters pray before well i um, also think you've had direct imperative just you haven't mentioned dear god like it like it's been help me like that sort yeah. of thing has definitely been in there and i'm sure there are prayers as well i should i should know we just read through the hunter cupboards but i think that this is um it's definitely not a lot of opportunity for quiet devotion in my, in my yeah. stories um yeah i don't know i'd have to go back and look at a particular scene and if um if somebody had a question about a particular scene, it was like, why isn't the character praying right mm-hmm. now in a traditional sense Yeah, right now? And then I'd, I'd have to answer for that specifically. Um, but I would say that I am always trying to push things along spiritually. But another, another one of these answers is that my characters are never my protagonists are never characters who are um, in a spiritually healthy place, or I would say in a, now they're not like hell's angels, but they're, um, they're not in a mature place. Okay. So when I start with Cyrus and Antigone, these are not church kids. Okay. You know, they're, they're total outcasts. These are the strays. So that could be part of their weakness then you're saying. Well, yeah. You're, if, if no, I'm, I'm trying to, so in terms of my collective audience and who I'm writing for, I'm trying to write for um, the people who are generally speaking unchurched and Christians. I want to write for Christian kids and non-Christian kids. I'm trying to write for kids and I'm trying to write for uh, kids who can relate to a brother and a sister who are feeling extreme father hunger and abandonment issues and are feeling kind of adrift and lost. And they are not currently rooted in a, a close relationship with God. 
Okay. You know, it's not that they're, it's not that they're. Um, so a kid who could pull out the Heidelberg right there yeah. is not, no. isn't, is a different character. Yep. And they're not, these are not kids. Henry's the same way. These are not kids that, um, that know really who they are at all, you know, in, in any respect. They don't know who they are in society. They don't know who they are in their own family or, uh, where they belong, their you know where their father is, you know who their father was, where where he belonged. Um, they're getting swept up into an adventure where they are encountering characters uh, who do believe, and so you're. But in, along the way and through the course of an adventure, you're encountering a John Smith, you're encountering a Rupert Graves, who's part of uh, a society where he has sworn an oath to a religious society in a religious society, which he takes very seriously. And they're being pulled into this thing, and there's a, there are call and response liturgies, and they do have to take an oath that is a religious oath, and they have all these things that are starting to come into their lives. And then you, then down the line, you meet a guy like Brother Niffy, who's like this overt. You start to meet these overtly religious characters, um, and they their understanding and is becoming fuller. Like they're they're encountering more. Okay. Um, <clears throat> And it's not like the little atheists. These are not little unbelievers, but neither are most kids. Like most kids in America are not like. Overt. They're not overt unbelievers. They're just kids. Um, okay. And they're kind of just in, a, in that kind of static place in that static position. And that's where I want to find them and grab them and, and pull them along. And so the motivation behind writing what I write is very driven by my target audience, which is broad broad cultural readership gotcha so the, you would really niche or genre your fiction down with a character who could believably pray yeah and moment. it's not to say i wouldn't do it it's right. not to say that i wouldn't you know there's no rule against it and it's not to say that i would never you know i'm sure listeners will reach out with the thing we forgot yeah. <laughs> the moment we forgot yeah and i actually i'm pretty you know I'm really kind of groping around in the dark in my head um, for some examples because I know there are some there, mm -hmm. uh, some specific scenes with different types of prayers. Uh, but really, if you think about my target audience for all of my novels, all of my novels have been broad market. Um, you know, I go on book tours through overwhelmingly through public schools and, you know, big conventions and so on. And I'm trying to hand out as I've said here before, I'm trying to hand out cool drinks of water and, you know, bread, bread and water for kids who've never been fed. I'm trying to hand out soul food. And yeah, a ton of Christian kids have found my books and read my books and like my books, but that's not, you know, that's not the exclusive portion of the marketplace. I'm trying to write to readers 12 and up or eight and up. And that's just any of them. <laughs> you know, just, you know, it's basically set an age demo and anybody over a certain age, I'm trying to write a story that could grab you and sweep you along. Um, and gotcha. that's, that's why I've approached things the way I have. Um, if that answers the question. I think, I think it does. Um, so if, and the problem is, I think that most people who are writing prayer it's not coming out of that character. It's writing, it's coming out of a desire to help you help, take, have a moral basically to the story. 
Or I think I should maybe most is too strong of a word, but that would be the temptation. I can think about like peace like a river. There's overt prayer and it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, from the dad, right? Yeah. I don't remember Ruben if he does. From the, from the dad. Yeah. Um, it's really good. I'm not, it's, it's, I don't want to dismiss it as right. if it's bad. I want to just. I mean, I think Robinson Crusoe has some pretty overt yeah. prayer in it too, where he's yeah. on a desert island being there. Yeah, All right. <laughs> Who else are you going to talk to? Um, yeah, I, I really don't. Um, you know, again, if people had specific questions, they could fire it in and I could answer about specific scenes. Yeah. And why I did them the way I did them. But the overarching answer is going to be my target audience. And so I can, something I talk about a lot to young writers, I was actually just talking to a, an aspiring, um, an aspiring minister about this, but young writers, my own kids, anybody interested in communication, there's always a triangle. And I probably talked about this before here because I, because I returned to it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you, who are you and where are you located? There's your target audience. And then there's where your target target audience should be. Yeah. And there's the triangle of who are you, who are they, and where ought they to be? And you want to try to give them whatever you can give them to help them move along their journey towards that destination. Yeah. And so you can't make any kind of decision about what kind of content to put in your story or in your written communication or in your film or anything else until you already know the answers to those three corners. Who yeah. are you? Who are they and where ought they to be? Yeah. Every piece of narrative art, every piece of communication is going to affect uh, the reader, the listener, the viewer, and yeah. affect them in which, which way. And so if you don't know where you're trying to move them or you don't know who they are, you can't even have a discussion of what should or should not be in something. You know, it's like what should or should not be in something is entirely answered by who are they? Yeah. Who are they and where are they located and where ought they to be located? Yeah. So where are they currently? Where ought they to be? Um, And so when you're making those decisions, if you have an extremely specific answer to that question of who are they, um, then, and where ought they to be, then you can start really tailoring with a lot of specificity what goes into this. So I am writing to, Amish wives in abusive relationships. Yeah. Where ought they to be? Out. <laughs> I'm trying to get them out. Right. Like, well, now, well, if that's the case, there are going to be some very specific things I'm going to be trying to put into whatever I'm writing. I'm going to try to make this happen. Uh, if my goal is I'm writing to human beings, male and female, both above the age of eight. <laughs> like, yeah, wow. And, Right. You know, like that's a huge category. And where am I trying to take them? I'm trying to take them to a place of wonder and joy. Yeah. Like that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give them a chocolate chip cookie. I'm trying to, I'm trying yeah. to give them an experience that will bring with it uh, nostalgia when they look back on it in years in the future, something that will be aromatic. Uh, yeah. That will, that will be sort of, um, it will smell of all sorts of things that are gospel enriched, right? Mm-hmm. And so if it's a Christian kid, it will make sense in a far more tangible way. If it's a kid who's never heard anything about Christianity, then characters like Niffy and John Smith and these other characters will resonate and be really foreign, but interesting and 
uh, in, yeah. in other ways. But it's a very big, huge category. And the goal is to really to, to edify and to delight. Like my goal is to, um, you know, to, to give them something in Christ's name that will, that will better their day, their week, and their memory, and their, you know, their childhoods. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And so, right. it's a very big thing. Again, if you said, I'm writing for retired U.S. Marines <laughs> who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. Yeah. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to bring them peace. It's like, so I wrote the terminal list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no. Um, and so actually we're getting all the way into, we're getting all the way into, should I, should I wife shame? Should- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the perfect episode for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Heather, Heather's calling. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, and she has every right to. Let's be clear. She yeah. has every right to call me. Top priority. She'll be in my secret phone for next sure, week. For sure. The bat phone. I just, we'll have Heather. Yeah, it just yeah. does it just doesn't mean that I'll necessarily have fewer Tyson phone calls. <laughs> um, but uh here we're getting into Yeah, so if we if we move into other like really specific um other specific goals or we're moving into really big goals. And here we're getting into rhetoric, the concept of rhetoric and invention, the first canon of rhetoric, which is the dis- yeah. discovering the available means of persuasion. So if you're discovering the available means of persuasion, that's you analyzing those three points. Yeah. Who are you? Who are they? Where ought they to be? What are the things that could potentially move them there? And then you're deciding what to bake into your communication. Yeah. So any question, any question about what ought to be in or ought to be out has to begin with uh, an absolute knowledge of the audience uh, or how broad the audience is, Uh you know, specificity of audience or breadth of audience, the author, the writer, the communicator, the filmmaker, the distributor, the market, you know, where it's going to be and, and the destination for the audience. Um, So I want to scare the audience into faith. (laughs) I want to what? So if you're Flannery O'Connor and the audience is whom, and I'm going to write these stories to get them to where, you can kind of reverse engineer what she's doing uh, to try to find the fruitfulness in some of the short stories, not the novels, but the short stories. Um, you know, like you can look at those, look at those things. So once you've analyzed the three corners, you can go through the process of invention and discovering yeah. the available means of persuasion. And those of you who've gotten to take rhetoric from Nate, you've done this before. You've done it. Yeah, and so you're in, you're, well in, you're in classical you're in classical rhetoric at that point, yeah, and and that's what you're doing, and so if you have questions about a book for an author, um, any kind of why questions, start by like analyzing it for yourself a little bit. Yeah, who are they? Who is the target audience? And then the question is, what is the goal? And if you know what the author did already and you know what the target audience, who the target audience was, then you can start to assess maybe. Um, right. Well, one thing about your book, it's kind of, it's, this question's kind of morphed into, you know, the challenge might be why aren't your books more overtly spiritual, more even overtly evangelical? And then I think it's very helpful to compare with a couple books. Well, I think immediately of Percy Jackson. And also of um, uh, Frank Peretti, and like with with spiritual elements there, and your books, 
and seeing which of those books takes the spiritual world realistically or, or believes in the spiritual world. And it seems to me very clear that your books have a huge presence of the spiritual and the mythic, like as if it's real. So that means like Percy Jackson's book takes the mythic or the story and treats it as real in a silly way. You know, we have a Hydra wearing a Dunkin' Donuts shirt or something in a Percy Jackson book. Yeah. Your mythical characters are not funny like that. Like, <laughs> you, like I think your idea is that it would not be fun to meet Gilgamesh. <laughs> like, no, but you like can still not... look at him and be his, wow, he's wearing a, some very tight pants. Yeah, that's true. Um, however, There's... no, it's still very terrifying. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing. So people who are asking, I guess, I, I think there's different <laughs> ways of communicating that spiritual, you know, when we're looking at the, who are you, who are they, where do you want to get them? Yeah. Triangle. Um, you do want them to have a deep knowledge of their being more and bigger to the world, like spiritual. The world's not just flat materialism. And, and I think that is probably why you've gone some of the route that you have that's not comfortable to, you know, an evangelical trope. Uh, or if I can put thoughts into your mouth. Yeah, I think that's, that is in fact accurate. But also I would say Christians are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> that's our clip for this one, I guess. <laughs> no, well. What do you mean, Nate? I can qualify and say frequently. Uh, frequently the earth. Frequently. Frequently the worst. Um, I can get more specific and really outrage some people, but I'll just, um, but which ones are the worst? But Christians really can be extremely finicky and unhappy with you because you never do enough. Ah, it's never enough. And so if if I am Chick Fil A, and I say, you know, I'm I'm a Christian author, and so what I want to do is I just want to make a really good chicken sandwich. Mm-hmm. And I want to make a really good chicken sandwich because I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And then there's always going to be people who are, who are saying, it's not enough that you're closed on Sunday. And it's not enough that you're openly a Christian. And it's not enough that you're making the best chicken sandwich that you can. Why aren't there Bible verses on this waffle fry container? Mm. Why are you handing chicken sandwiches out the window at all? Why is it not a Gideon Bible? Okay. And you're Why saying- Why is it not? It's like, well, because I'm doing chicken sandwiches. I'm yeah. doing- it's yeah. chicken. It's a chicken sandwich place. Yeah. Well, why aren't you doing something else? It's like well, I didn't want to <laughs> <laughs> because I'm not supposed to. Um, that's fair, fair. not yeah. what I am called to do. I am doing something else. I am not handing out Gideon Bibles. I am making fantastic spicy chicken sandwiches. Um, gotcha. And it's like, and I'm doing it as a Christian. I'm doing the like the best of my ability. And I am. This is a dark parable, but I think people can interpret it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so, but there's always people who are saying, but why aren't you being more overt? Why, are, why aren't mm-hmm. you, um, why aren't you blowing this up? Why aren't you stopping doing what you are doing and doing something different? Mm. Um, you're like, that's, that's always yeah. kind of the question. Why haven't you dialed it? And they, they want to, it's death by a thousand cuts too, because it's like, well, but surely you could print a Bible verse on this fry container sure surely a bible verse would fit on this bag and surely a second one would fit too and a third one and a fourth one and mm-hmm. you know what like it just it's the next it's the next Fries thing inside a gideon bible yeah exactly and it's sort of what if you just did the next thing what if you just did yeah. a little bit more what if you just did a little bit more it's like well 
if if I am here trying to tell good stories, I'm trying to tell stories that are true, good, and beautiful. I'm trying to tell stories that will feed millions of kids and will feed them something true, good, and beautiful, contrary to the food they are getting otherwise, and trying to do it in a way that will affect their imaginations and wake up wonder and joy and peel back some of the blindness mm-hmm. in their eyes from a materialistic apathy in the modern world and actually kind of wake them up to the to the world a little bit, I will be thrilled. So to be to be where I and you're exactly right. So I am pushing against materialism and I mean it. You know, I've I've said before that Rowling writes Harry Potter like she doesn't believe in magic. Mm -hmm. Um Percy Jackson is it's it's farcical. Reardon writes like myths didn't happen. Yeah. And so I'm I'm trying to write in a way through the coverage trilogy, through Ashtown, through Alice of Time. I'm trying to write in a way that will like make kids wake up to the world in which God has placed them. We'll begin the process of peeling off, you know, the, the little blinkers on, around their eyes that are being placed there by their educational system. Can I wake up the wonder? Can I, you know, spark the pilot light in their imagination? Can I kind of wake them up as anti-materialists, you know, in this materialistic age? And that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm trying to feed them something that will strike them, that they'll love, that will feed them and feed their souls and yeah. feed their imaginations in a way that they will be inoculated against blind materialism and they will be uh, really pushed. Yeah. Pushed towards exploring. You're this, trying to open eyes. Yeah. Trying to yeah. push towards exploring the fantastical, wonderful world in which they've been placed. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do. And then other people say, but that's great. But what if you did evangelism instead? Yeah. It's like, um, I'm, I'm you not. know, I have nothing wrong with evangelists. Go, go evangelist. Go. It's just not what I am. I'm, I'm Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And the hypothetical objection, we all, we've learned to recognize it, that when someone says, hey, you shouldn't say that because hypothetically, what if this person heard you? Yeah. You know. What if this imaginary person I made up in my head? Yeah. You shouldn't praise yeah. having children because imaginary. What if, what if somebody next door that can't. I just made up is, is hurt? Yeah. <clears throat> um, and they don't, they don't want to be told to suck it up buttercups ever. Right. Um, and so in this case, like obviously I'm not against evangelism. Right. Um, but I am generally against evangelistic art. Yeah. I, you know, which is just to say a propagandistic. I, I know it sounds so strong, but there's no way around it that if, if you're trying to communicate a message, that's propaganda, not a story. Or I should say a message that everyone gets the exact same thing out of their story. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the definition of propaganda, right? Because you've put it in the guise of a story. Or maybe, it, it doesn't have to be. We've talked about this a little bit before, but I would say that when you're telling a story, you want to tell a story about a person. Yeah. You want to tell a story about people and you want the story to be a natural outworking, a natural, like an organic outworking of their narrative. What you don't want to do is start with the conclusion, which is a, an analytical reduction down to a true or false statement of, you know, from a narrative and you start with that and then you start trying to inflesh it. And if you, if you start with this thing, mother Russia is wonderful. 
true or false statement. And he said, I'm going to write a story that convinces everyone that Mother Russia is wonderful. Yeah. So I have a true or false statement. I'm going to start here and then I'm going to incarnate this into a narrative mm-hmm. backwards. I'm going to go backwards into this. Then you're doing propaganda. Gotcha. Even yeah. if that true or false statement is good. Yeah. Even if that's a true statement, even if it is a good statement and you say, you know what we should do? We should take this true statement and we should like wrap it in this narrative. Then we're going to manipulate the characters and we're going to manipulate the whole thing so that we spoon feed this fortune cookie statement into the minds of every person who reads this. Yeah. Then you end up with, you know, temperance literature. (laughs) You you end up with... Bad novels yeah. that get you prohibition, bad novels that gets you propaganda. It's propaganda. That's what it is. Yeah. And so even if the statement's true, even if that thing is a good, a good sentence, it was a good sentence. So, you know, a son should honor his father. Yeah. I'm going to write a story, which is now an argument. Right. To convince somebody that a son should honor his father. It's like, now it's not to say that you shouldn't ever write a parable that leads somebody somewhere. Of course you can. Christ did, obviously. Um, That's not the goal of the novel. It's not, yeah. It's not what this art form is. It's not what this thing is. Um, And so I don't want to do it. It's also not where the delight of the novel is, I guess is the point. Like where a novel gets fun is when it communicates slant, tells the truth slant. And it's also important to know that a lot of people's, I've heard way too many Christians say, I want to get into storytelling. I want to get into filmmaking because, you know, Christ communicated with stories and I think it's the most powerful way to communicate and yada, yada, yada. It's like, go back and read that again because sometimes it says that he communicated in a, in a parable so that they would not understand. Yeah. Like he actually used stories because it was, they were less effective. They were less clear and he wanted to hide his meaning. And so he hid, he hid the thing via story. And walked away. Yeah. <laughs> like, and don't don't just think because he told stories that it was so that it would be obvious to everybody. Um, and so this is a fine line. I have no um I have no problem with cautionary tales. I have no problem with satire. I have no problem with those things. Um, but I'm not looking to try to uh reverse engineer morality sentences, truisms into novel formats such that everybody who reads it says, ah, I have come to a wise conclusion. Yeah. I have arrived at this sentence. Mother Russia is good. Yeah. Like, it's just not what I'm, (laughs) not what I'm signing up for. There, there are plenty of people who are willing to write pamphlets and. I mean, your point works too, because a novel whose point is Mother Russia is good is so much easier to stand against. Yeah. Than a novel that, say, captures Russia in a compelling way. As yep. I know you don't enjoy the Russian novelists as much as as your wife. But oh, uh, come on now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, do, I love a good Russian novel. Yeah. Um, but you. But basically, the idea. Yeah, Mother Russia's great. No, it isn't. That's easy. I can retract that statement. I respect a good Russian novel. Yeah, I was going to say we've we've had... love is a strong word. <laughs> love is a strong word. <laughs> but, I respect it. But you'll you'll feel if you if you get deep into the Dostoevsky. Yeah, you know you feel Russia in a way that you can't just say no to. Yep, you have to have respect. No, you can have sympathy and you can have affinity for and, and yeah. so on. So I do I do think that there's there's a 
a power in fiction that can enable you to see things and appreciate things and relate to things that you would not have been able to otherwise. Yeah. But there has to be a certain amount of freedom of natural chemical reaction between these characters and how the story and is told. the world and not an author like a Victorian, you know, puppeteer yeah. forcing, you know, just forcing his characters into particular positions to make them reach the meaning uh, that was the goal. And I think that just always results in disjointed and flawed stuff. There we go. There we Ta-da. We're done with Octo Yeah. This has been Sasp. Another pleasant afternoon. A Monday this time. A Monday in which we discoursed on how much I love Russian novels. <laughs> <laughs> we should have asked Heather. <laughs> hey, it's Brian Cole, and I recently got an email from one of our audio listeners who was saying, hey, I've already listened to both Anne of Green Gables books on Canon Plus and I'm wondering where the rest of the series is. And I thought, you know what? I should tell people what's gotten onto Canon Plus recently in case they too, like me, have not yet listened to Anne of Green Gables. Uh, All I know about Anne is that I think she has red hair and I think she broke a writing slate over a boy's head. Those are the two things I know. Anyways, I wanted to encourage you to take a gander at our children's section our classic section and our writing section because that's those are kind of three things that overlap with what the soul food crowd is into. Uh, especially we've been listening to the children's section with all its E. Nesbitt stuff, Five Children and It, Secret of the Amulet, The Treasure Seekers, funny stuff, great narrator and fun to listen to. Of course, if you're looking for good narrators, you also do need to check out Cannonball's own Brave Ollie Possum. If you don't have the Glorch voice, as a bedtime routine, I don't know what you're doing. And if you aren't tired of my voice, you can listen to My Father's Dragon, which for some reason I went ahead and read, I think because I'm fond of it. Now you too can listen to me struggle to separate all of the different creatures' voices and keep them straight. Yeah, that's not the best pitch for My Father's Dragon, but it is a good story, which is, I believe, becoming a Netflix series soon. Last thing you might want to check out, is the classic series, the Old Mother West Wind series by Thornton Burgess, a bunch of modern-day Aesop fables with tragedy, success, and adventure, all about animals in a wood. Anyways, there's a lot of stuff on there. That's just kind of scratched the surface, but you SASF listeners can try it out for a month on Canon Plus for the low, low price of 99 cents with the code SASF99, S-A-S-F-99. All right, that's enough of me. Bye.